Diversity, it might be what's holding your team back and you may not know it yet and may not know how to solve it. For that reason, I'm really excited to tell you that Data Futurology has established a partnership with She Loves Data and we're doing a series dedicated on improving diversity in your organization, in your teams, in your workplace, so you can get the most value out of your teams, out of your data and create products that the market really wants. Tune in every week as we speak with executives and female leaders from all over the world on how they have targeted and improved the diversity on their teams. And you can find out what we can learn from them. We are thrilled as a She Loves Data to be part of the Tough Futurology podcast, where we will showcase some female leaders, but the leaders from tech industry. And we will be talking about strategies, about data, about biases, and about diversity. Join us. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors. One of our sponsors is Shine Solutions Group. Shine Solution Group is a technology consultancy that has been empowering their enterprise and government partners with pragmatic technology solutions for over 20 years. Learn more at shinesolutions.com. Also a big thank you to SAS, giving you the power to know. Through innovative software and services, SAS empowers and inspires data advocates around the world to transform data into intelligence. Committed to diversity, did you know about the Women in Analytics Network that they have? It's a SaaS-sponsored networking program aimed to strengthen diversity in the analytics field. Check it out in the show notes below. They're definitely committed to it as they're helping us with this diversity series too. I also would like to tell you about Growing Data. Growing Data is a consultancy that helps organizations unlock the full potential of their data. They work with some of Australia's most successful organizations from finance. They work with people like ANZ Bank, through to biotechnology companies like CSL, and all the way to construction, working with companies like Metricon. They help these and many more companies solve their most challenging data-related problems in analytics, machine learning, data engineering, and data governance. While I was at ANZ Bank, I got the pleasure to work with the team at Growing Data, and I can tell you for a fact, they are top-notch. I highly recommend Growing Data. Find out more at growingdata.com.au. Also, a big thank you to Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Hello and welcome to episode two of the She Leads Getting Real About Diversity and Data series brought to you in collaboration with She Loves Data. Today, we're exploring how the pandemic highlighted the need for data-driven and diverse leadership. I'm your host, Monica Mina, Head of Content at Data Futurology, and I'm joined by our co-host, Patricia Mouliez, Head of Global Partnerships at She Loves Data. Thank you, Monica. Hello to our listeners. And uh, I'm really thrilled to be here representing She Loves Data. Monica, I have to say, it was an absolute pleasure working with you and our respective teams putting together this series. So thank you for partnering. Likewise. Look, we are thrilled today as well to welcome our special guest from Mumbai, Anu Madgavkar, 
who's the partner at McKinsey Global Institute. Anu's recent research has focused on global labor markets and skills and gender economics. And she's here to share with us today her recent body of research around COVID's effect on gender inequality and the future of women at work. Anu, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Monica. It's uh, absolutely, I'm delighted to be part of this podcast and it's a real pleasure to be in this conversation with you and Pat and, um, you know, with, with, with all our viewers and audiences. Thank you. We were really, like I say, really interested in your body research and also how you, how you came to be in this field. I'm just keen to hear more about your journey and, and how you ended up in this area of, of research. That's an interesting question. I, uh, looking back, I've been uh, sort of with McKinsey and Company for almost 20 years, and it did not start out that I was, uh, you know, very, very focused on, on topics around diversity and inclusion necessarily. Uh, I think like most, uh, most people of my generation and uh, background in India, I, did, I didn't really think about myself uh, as a woman, right? As I was going through school and then, you know, higher education and then entering the workforce, didn't really think about this as a topic that mattered. In fact, I clearly remember that in my very first, uh, you know, the first time I was being interviewed for a job, uh, you know, when I was uh, finishing up my MBA and I was ready to enter the job market, uh, one of those interviews, and it wasn't McKinsey, but it was a financial services uh, organization and there was a very senior woman leader who was actually interviewing me and the interview went very well and then all of a sudden she said uh, you know it came out of nowhere but the question she asked is you know will you continue working once you get married Uh, and I have to say I was dumbfounded it was the one question in the interview that I had no answer for because I had never conceived of anything other than that. And I couldn't quite figure out why she was asking. Mm. Um, I I went into consulting and then uh, there was a time and that was essentially once I had, uh, you know, my first child and then a second. I have two two kids who are now teenagers. But I think motherhood did change some things for me and did make me much more aware of notions like, you know, how do you actually, you know, work-life balance really matters. You know, how do you juggle the double shift? Uh, And then I started focusing more on this notion that there's a really leaky pipeline and a lot of women do drop out. Uh, And as you start thinking about that and navigating that, your own journey through that, I think I got a lot more interested in, well, why does this matter to the world at large and to economies and to women around the world? Uh, and that was the start of, I think, a lot of work that we did at McKinsey Global Institute uh, to add, contribute to the body of knowledge here. Um, and I can relate to a lot of that, actually. Absolutely. I was, I was just about to say that, you know, motherhood really changes your perspective when it comes to work. And, um, and uh, it definitely uh, forces you to to identify certain priorities. We'll, uh, we'll touch a bit more on diversity as well later, but uh, I'd like to touch as well on the state of work now, right? Uh, the International Labor Organization estimates that nearly 400 million jobs were lost by the end of 
the second quarter of this year. And yeah, the, the numbers are quite dire. My question, Anu, is how has this uh, massive displacement changed the way McKinsey characterized its uh, future of work, uh, future of work uh, prognosis? That's a great question. And it's actually uh, a topic that we are working on at the moment. I think uh, a, a couple of things, right? So this has been an unprecedented shock to the labor market worldwide, right? No country uh, has been free of this. Uh, but, but we have headed into this crisis. If you look back at the last, let's say, two decades, and you look at the advanced economies, the OECD countries, uh, there were some really interesting labor market trends that happened in the last two decades. Because despite the shock of the 2008-9 global financial crisis, we were actually at a place pre-COVID where uh, you know jobs, job growth was actually very strong, uh, and had reached record. You know, em the employment rate in economies had reached record highs. Now there was a change in the composition of the kind of jobs people were doing, and I think one of the most significant changes was that there was far less. Uh, you know, structured, uh, formal and structured and predictable secure job contracts, because all of the new work was much more, you know, either gig, you know, gig economy workers right. or people who, uh, you know, for partly out of choice and partly out of circumstance were, uh, you know, working on small shorter term contracts or project based work and getting paid for what they were doing. Right. So the nature of work had become more variable, but there were still a lot of job opportunities. Now, what, what's happened with COVID is that uh, a couple of these trends, which are long-term trends, are actually getting accelerated. And the first of these is likely to be automation. Uh, you know, automation has been changing the nature of work, uh, you know, for the last 10 years or more. Uh, but we are likely to see more companies, uh, you know, keen to invest uh, in automation just to make their you know, cost base, more resilient, more flexible, and so forth, right? So the pace at which looking out, looking out 10 years, I would say that the pace at which automation is changing the inherent work that we're all doing, uh, that, that will accelerate, and that's going to affect all people in the workforce. Uh, and then, of course, the second is that the, 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 pre the more precarious nature of work that I had called out as one of the hallmarks of the last two decades that in our view will also likely increase. So there will be more, uh, you know, uh, perhaps reliance on independent models of work and companies may not be that keen to, uh, in the near term, you know, rebuild their workforce, but might actually want to have that workforce flexibility and outsource a little bit more or variableize their cost base a little bit more. So these trends are likely both automation as well as the trend towards more alternative work arrangements will both likely accelerate post-COVID. Uh, and then the third piece is, of course, how COVID is impacting the world of work for women, which we can also get into. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, how the pandemic has changed people's attitudes to work. As you mentioned, you know, there was a lot of people quite comfortable on contracts, work and that kind of thing. I think a lot of people now are saying they are much more risk-averse um, and, and going yeah. forward, there'll be 
much more cautious about the types of jobs they take. Um, following on from that macro view, what impact do you think the pandemic has had specifically on women and gender inequality? So this is a very uh, sobering uh, set of findings, actually, that we have. Uh, in general, again, just looking back at past trends, we have seen at best modest improvements in gender parity at work over the last five to seven years. It hasn't, it hasn't proceeded in a dramatically fast fashion. Mm -hmm. What COVID's actually done is uh, at the moment, it has been regressive. So it's actually pushed gender parity further down in the following sense. Uh, we have found uh, looking at, there isn't sort of perfect data on this available, but we've studied this across a few countries. And our sense is that women have been you know, more likely to experience unemployment and job loss through the mm -hmm. COVID crisis than men. If you extrapolate or estimate these numbers globally, it means that women are about 39% of the global workforce, but they account for 54% of global unemployment. So 39% of workers, but 54% of global unemployment. Uh, and this is partly because, so there are two sets of reasons, right? You might wonder why this is the case. So one set of reasons is because the world of work is still very gendered and there are certain sectors and occupations in which women, uh, you know, cluster, right? They're kind of represented uh, in, in, in those sectors or occupations in greater share. Uh, and things like retail trade, uh, accommodation, food services, hospitality, these are sectors where women kind of have a larger share of the workforce, but they're also disproportionately affected by COVID. And that's one reason. Uh, but even accounting for that, you know, we find that women have been more susceptible. So even accounting for this, uh, there are perhaps attitudes, mindsets, uh, and, and unconscious as well as conscious biases on both sides, the employer as well as sometimes the employee uh, due to which, you know, uh, women have been disproportionately affected. 1.8 times more likely to lose a job than a male counterpart in the same sector. So this is, this is um, not great news because the cause of uh, gender parity and improving gender parity in the workforce is actually a huge economic opportunity for every country in the world. And we had estimated that that's like a $12 trillion opportunity out to 2030. If you look at you know, the progress that all countries in the world could make in terms of improving women's labor force participation. But against that potential of 12 trillion on the positive side, if you look at what COVID's already done, it has set us back uh, to a negative 1 trillion, right? So there's a huge gulf. Instead of making progress towards the 12, we're actually down to a negative $1 trillion potential uh, relative to where we would have been otherwise. And that's not good news. I think what it means is that there's an urgent need for both policymakers as well as business leaders to really think about this issue and act on it now. What would be those uh, specific uh, steps that you think business leaders or even governments should take in order to address these gaps that are unique to women? So I think this is also uh, a period of great because it's a very disruptive period, it's a period of great, uh, let's say, innovation and experimentation. And I think we need to really embrace this time, therefore, to uh, be more aggressive and experiment with, uh, you know, more gender-friendly 
uh, ways of support, both on the government or policy side as well as on the business side. So, for example, I think governments are, you know, extending themselves in a very major way around the world in terms of providing either income support, uh, you know, credits, vouchers, or direct transfers to households who are vulnerable. Uh, and also finding ways to support businesses, particularly small businesses. Mm. Now, this is good, but there is an opportunity to apply a gender lens to this and to right. make sure that, you know, in the design of such uh, interventions or support programs, you actually actively perhaps target, for example, women business owners, right? Because you know that they are likely to be more vulnerable for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, one of which, by the way, is that the burden of, you know, caring for the home has actually gone up so much with COVID exactly. and women are taking the big load there, right? So policymakers can apply that gender lens in the way they design some of this. And I think for business leaders, this is really a moment of truth uh, because for, the, for, for leading companies and organizations, how we come out of COVID from a talent value proposition perspective, you know, how we come out and the extent to which we've supported women through this is, is, is something that will last. The memory of this will last and your value proposition as an employer in, in the war for talent will be affected unless you actually actively help women through things like, you know, uh, flexibility uh, schemes, right? That actually allow women to adjust their, uh, their, their, their workload through this period. I mean, Zoom has been a blessing in some ways, but it's also... Uh, meant that, uh, you know, there really are no boundaries and barriers between work and home anymore. right? And we've got to be sensitive to that. And we've got to make it okay for uh, women to kind of draw some lines, right, at some point. Uh, And companies that do that are going to be the companies that actually have greater stickiness and loyalty from their uh, workforce. Thank you, Anu. I just have a follow up question to that. There is, uh, so there is leaders working to address diversity, that's one, one thing. And then you have diversity within the leadership itself, which is an entirely different issue. Now, uh, we've been going through some of your uh, publications on uh, diversity, uh, delivering through diversity. And they have established for sure that indeed diversity uh, is a key driver for uh, competitive advantage, not just for businesses, but also for economies in general. So would you care to share any data points that shows evidence that, that substantiates essentially that a diverse leadership can only benefit any organization? No, absolutely. I think uh, that, that piece of work, uh, so we actually looked at more than a thousand companies around the world from a mix of you know countries and 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 geographies and so on Uh, and what we found is that companies that were in the top quartile uh, in terms of the diversity of their executive team at the top the c-suite top quartile companies were 25 percent more likely to outperform in terms of profitability and uh, you know long-term value creation right uh, equally, so this this is the diversity dividend in some ways to companies, and this is true not just of gender uh, gender based diversity, but also ethnic uh, diversity, right? But what's interesting is that the converse is also true. So the companies at the bottom quartile, 
the the diversity laggards so to speak uh, mm-hmm. also had a 29% lower you know profitability or 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 average value creation right so it's very clear that well this is a correlation so let's not you know necessarily conclude that it's cause and effect but it's very clear that at the company level you know higher uh, achievement on diversity across these dimensions uh, is goes hand in hand with better performance on really hard economic metrics uh, right. over substantial periods of time it's a really solid that's a really solid statistic it's, it's pretty crystal clear there do you think that companies uh, do you have any information i suppose any research that shows um i guess how aware companies and leaders are around those statistics themselves because that's that's very compelling to see that that evidence and i wonder i guess whether business leaders are taking enough action to to deliver diversity for that reason or whether they think it's just a nice to have still i think there is awareness and there is uh, at least uh, a heightened uh, sense of stated intent right so i mean i i think leaders genuinely want at some level to to move in a positive direction on this i think from surveys it's uh something like more than 80% of you know ceos say that diversity is a top 3 topic and that number's gone up from roughly 70% right over the last few years so at one level that's there but i think where it's not enough right is 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 probably two things one is coming to the theme around data i think it is really important to understand this both the issues the bottlenecks as well as the possibilities but to understand it at a very granular level mm-hmm. and i think that's where many large organizations uh, you know a struggle a little bit so w- w- what we advocate is and a lot of our surveys in north america and so on are really around this concept of uh, a funnel right or a pipeline to say that we actually need to have a really strong view of women at the entry level and then we need to track and understand what happens to women versus men but also women of different you know uh, groups and backgrounds we really need to understand at what point they start uh, dropping out so at what point is the pipeline really leaking uh, and then we have to step in so that's one dimension the granularity of understanding what's happening the second dimension which is i think a big opportunity is for ceos to really step up and 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 walk the talk on saying that gender diversity is important there is a lot of intent around it but when you walk the talk it's really exactly. when you are role modeling that behavior you're out there you're actively changing the shape of your c suite you're sending messages down that this is non negotiable you know i need to understand why this is not happening when that happens you actually see behavior changing uh, not just at levels below the ceo but you also see it changing in all the key hr processes whether it's recruitment or the way you evaluate or the way you sponsor and create opportunities for people the way you think about promotions you know there is there is this aspect that comes into each one of those and where a lot of unconscious or structural biases then are questioned so just to give you an and, and we are not advocating for targets or quotas at each of these levels far from it right it, it is a meritocracy and it should be but what we're saying is that when you have a hard set of questions asked 
about why, for example, your recruitment intake is only 30% women and not 50%. When you're asked that, you start thinking about it and solving for it. And maybe one answer is that, you know, I'm not going out and attracting, I'm not going out to talent pools that are diverse enough. You know, I have a mindset about a narrowly defined set of talent pools. I'm not really looking at profiles, which are, by the way, more diverse and would, would, would benefit my organization. So when we ask ourselves these questions at every stage, I think there are solutions which go well beyond, hey, here's a target or here's a quota that you have to meet. So for the business leaders out there who are listening to this podcast, what advice do you have to them on how to open up their funnel to, to attract more of a diverse candidate base into the organization in, in the first place? I think it depends on your context and your country. Uh, I'll give you an example from India where I'm based, uh, where uh, in many organizations, there is a notion that the highest quality of talent is typically those who have an engineering degree and they might have an MBA after that, but it's really quantitative engineering type of talent that's valued, right? Uh, and what we are finding is that it's actually interdisciplinary talent that's actually most effective, uh, as well as the ability to work in teams and really weave together solutions which are holistic based on lots of specialized talent. So if I change the mindset, and I would urge all business leaders to do this, change the mindset to say it's not about a specific educational background that you should be wedded to, for example, but it's really these skills at being interdisciplinary, able to kind of join the dots on, on multiple areas. You might actually look at different disciplines. You might look, you'd be much more open to creative disciplines. You might be more open to communications-based, uh, you know, disciplines, and you might actually look there and find the right kind of skill. So it's a little bit about, it always has to start with what makes sense for your business. Uh, and we would be the last to say, you know, pursue diversity for its own sake. It's because it makes sense for your business from a strategic and economic perspective. But the diversity nudge makes you question that and say, okay, what is it that I really need? Uh, and quite oftentimes the answer is about, you know, uh, the answer leads you to more diverse talent pools and attracting those into your company. Absolutely. There is a, you mentioned the, the need, not just for uh, particularly uh, technical or hard skills, but also uh, soft skills like adaptability and, and creativity and such. Uh, how would, how would we, what would be the best way to convince our business leaders to change that mindset of moving away from paper credentials and the traditional way of, of, of uh, funneling candidates based on, on such credentials. Uh, do you think that it's, it's more than just a, a policy change, but rather a cultural change? You mentioned mindset change. Uh, how do we affect this? Is it uh, something that needs to start from as a realization by individual leaders, or do you feel that it needs to be an external push? I think that's a great question. So how does this change really happen? Yeah. Uh, and I think it does need to, uh, it, it does need to lead from conviction and, and internal conviction. But then the question is, well, what, what actually builds that conviction, right? So I think one good place to start is, again, the data. 
And if you look at the data around, for example, there is now extensive data around skills, right? So there's a whole taxonomy of the different kinds of tasks and activities and skills that we use in each of our jobs. What I do might comprise, you know, 50 or 60 different tasks that have different kinds of skills associated with them. Uh, and we, for example, have then mapped that to levels of automatability, right? Saying some of these skills are easily automated, others are actually not. And if you run that model out, I think the data stares you in the face, which is to say that the skills which will be more in demand as automation increases will actually be, uh, you know, one of the top two skill buckets. Of course, tech, being able to understand and work with technology is clearly one of the top, you know, top buckets of skills, right, that will be in demand, no doubt about that. To that extent, it's not just the hard skills we are talking about, but also creative, because it's about creating and shaping technological solutions. Uh, but the second most important skill bucket is actually social and interpersonal, so social and emotional right. skills, right? Because this is a really about how people work in teams or how they uh, you know, uh, are able to really integrate different perspectives into what they do. And this has a very low level of automatability. And therefore, if you look at you know, skills in demand versus not in future, it's actually a very high growth area. So I think one thing is to, to kind of look at that, to say, okay, this is, this is what it is. And then to translate that into, again, if, if you create a typology of the most successful leaders in your organization and really think about what is making them successful, you might be able to tell some stories that suggest how it's really a person's social and you know, emotional and interpersonal skills that have actually been, you know, made them an extraordinary leader, right? Uh, so I think different elements, some data, some kind of more storytelling and introspection and relating it back to your organization are all going to be quite key uh, as we think about making that cultural mindset shift to say what's right. really important for, for the organization. I've got a follow-up question on, on automation and augmented workforces, which we touched on earlier. In your uh, The Future of Women at Work uh, paper, uh, it mentions that between 40 and 160 million women globally need to transition into higher skilled occupations by 2030. And this was, uh, I believe, before the pandemic, if I'm not mistaken. And you also mentioned that the pandemic has actually accelerated the need for digitization and automation. So given the unique hurdles that women do have, right, uh, how can policymakers, how can business leaders identify and really acknowledge what these barriers are uh, other than, of course, referring to your study, but internally as, as, as some sort of uh, introspective practice for their own companies and organizations. How do, what do you think would be the best approach for really uh, addressing the unique concerns of women? I think there are two, two parts of the priority that uh, business leaders need to really think about. One is the, 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 tra the massive transformation and the transitions of the 40 to 160 million women, even pre-COVID, 
could well be required to change their occupations. Now, that's actually as important a transition for the male workforce. It, you, we argue that it might be easier for the male workforce because they don't have some of the other barriers that are to do with investing time, for example. Like it's mm -hmm. very difficult as a woman, you're already pretty challenged in terms of time allocation. Uh, so acquiring new skills is hard for you to do. But that said, I think this is a priority for the whole workforce. So if you do the introspection you talked about, I think one and the first important part of this is to really internalize again, what does this mean for my workforce, right? Uh, it, it, it's a massive tsunami of uh, occupational and skill transitions. And I don't think organizations are geared to a constant retraining of even their current workforce. They're scrambling to actually train and make fit for purpose, like entry-level workers and kind of help them move along. Nobody's really thinking about my whole cadre of workers and how I actually have to retrain them. So I think doing a good, robust exercise to identify some of the big upskilling priorities within your workforce is, is clearly number one. And then the, I think the other big second priority is uh, to step back and to think about, you know, going back to the basics on gender diversity and saying the two or three key elements that we need to fix. One of them may be, for instance, sponsorship, which is encouraging or making it, uh, you know, making it part of the normal for uh, you know, women to actually get opportunities to shine, take risks, you know, uh, drive new projects, things that they might not always do, but need sponsorship to make happen. Uh, so I think I would double down a lot on sponsorship. Uh, and then I would again, double down on uh, kind of flex and retraining. I mean, these would be the two most important things. And this is almost regardless of the big occupational transition coming. This is important just to even preserve the level of gender diversity you have, given everything that we said about COVID's actually making this worse, right? Right, right. Um, she Loves Data is an organization that essentially aims to inspire women to get into technology and uh, this is exactly what one of the reasons why we help and partner with organizations and, and help women uh, upskill, uh, reskill, and really uh, continue looking for opportunities for work. How do you think will uh, uh, non-government organizations or nonprofits or social enterprises, how important are they in, in this uh, in this communal effort to, to address these uh, issues for women? I think you said it yourself when you said communal efforts, because that's in a sense the, the, the heart of it, uh, partnerships and collaborations. Very hard to pull off. And I'm not sort of saying they're easy. They're much harder to do than just driving what you need to do as part of your own organization. But some of the most uh, promising uh, approaches might well be where you have, uh, let's say, uh, individual companies or sometimes even cross, uh, you know, across an industry, like a set of companies, really collaborating with uh, the social sector or the nonprofit sector who has the reach and the orientation and the ability really to, uh, you know, to, to, to craft solutions. But, but, but 
but it's it's not so effective if they are not for example plugged into those who are really demanding those skills right so that's, that's collaboration true. and partnership and where it's worked i think in the tech sector it's a good example of you know many leading tech companies have actually collaborated with uh, either um, uh, you know either skills training platforms or uh, universities uh, to build sort of uh, you know more uh, stem skills ready or tech skills ready workforces particularly for women so there are you know examples of that i think the the challenge is taking that up two or three notches because it's a lifetime or lifelong training we're really talking about it's not just the initial train apprentice get the person a job in a tech company and then hopefully they're okay but this is about taking some of those skills and thinking about lifelong skilling and across sectors because every sector is going to be affected by tech so the magnitude is much much more but i think the spirit of these partnerships because it has to be demand back and we have found yeah. everywhere that when it's not demand you know derived from the demand side of the story if it's only a supply side intervention that doesn't really work that well it's a fair point which are the the key skills that we should focus on building for workforces to help fuel technological and economic progress i think they uh, are at two or three levels there is a, a a level which is very important around just basic functional knowledge of how to use tech uh, and for many economies and many parts of the workforce that's not necessarily something we can assume but that is something they're going to have to do right so whether it's uh, you know the nurse of the future right she's going to have to actually probably uh uh do a lot of the triage using some kind of a device that is capturing patient data right or if you think about the assembly line worker of the future that person is already today and more so in future going to be uh, basically looking at you know machines and devices that are already tracking a lot of the data in the plant and then trying to make operational decisions on that basis right or go all the way down to an e-commerce logistics executive who's actually at a very basic level needs to at least understand how to use the app and go and deliver you know the 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 product to the right address right so at every level we can't assume but i think for workforce skilling there's a lot of functional technology usage that's going to be important and then there's the second higher order piece which is really about creative problem solving so tech tech is fine you know tech tech skills and knowledge of uh, emerging technologies is good but i think most even technology companies would say that what's lacking is the creative problem solving aspect of what we're looking for in the workforce so they might have knowledge of you know the components that go into a new technology they might understand you know blockchain or they might understand the basics of uh, ai and machine learning but we don't need just that right we need we need creative problem solving uh, solvers so and that's actually hard hard to do i mean yeah. in all honesty right that is very hard to do and some organizations actually devote a huge amount of time and organizational effort to apprentice their workers around problem solving uh but but if there are ways in which we can boost that through uh through some you know cost effective platforms and solutions if there are ways in which we can build those skills 
in our young people, those who are entering the workforce, I think that's going to be invaluable because the last thing we want is people entering the workforce with their heads full of facts and knowledge, which has zero value, right? It's completely commoditized. You can get all the facts you want at, at the click of a button. You can get, you know, all, all the processing power you want at the click of a button. There's no great premium in being able to process a math problem very quickly in your head anymore, right? What you do need is this ability to be a problem solver and look at different things and come up with a way to think about them or build a solution around them. Sounds great. Uh, that's, I, I guess that's where uh, the trend for design thinking, applying design thinking to problem solving can come in handy. Uh, so Anu, you are, your passion and, and personal investment in, in, in diversity as a topic is, is of course very evident. And it's, you're, I think you're so fortunate to be actually researching on the topic. Uh, can you share with us any initiatives by McKinsey that, that, that are in support of, of uh, developing women's careers? And can you share any impact that they may have already uh, you know, affected? Apart from, apart from, of course, you propagating all these knowledge and research to our uh, thought leaders. Yeah. Uh, no, again, I think that's, that's an important question. I think uh, as we think about it for ourselves as a firm, uh, I, I would say with all humility that it's a journey for us as well, uh, as, as with many other firms. It's not, uh, it, it's not simple and it's something that is important, but we are still moving along that journey, right? Uh, and I would say that uh, that movement has actually received a considerable amount of momentum and push in the last few years. Uh, a lot of this is uh, coming together in a sort of uh, movement or formation. We call it all-in. So all-in uh, basically is a sort of commitment uh, and action around that to support uh, you know, to support those in the firm across a range of backgrounds, perspectives, uh, orientations. It's not just gender, it's, uh, you know, sexual orientation, it's uh, ethnic backgrounds, uh, you know, religious backgrounds. So it is an all-encompassing idea to say that we want to make the firm better for all of these. And, and remember that for a firm like ours, if we don't get this right, this has serious consequences because it is all about being, uh, you know, being able to attract the best talent, right? It, it is really about that and to help that talent thrive. We just can't do that unless it's a diverse talent pool uh, because the solutions we come up with will be boring or outdated or not in tune with what our clients want, right? So it, yeah. is, it, it, is, it is crucial. And to your question around what is it specifically that we are doing, for example, uh, I think on on the women piece of all in, uh, there is a, a a huge focus now on uh, sponsorship in particular. Uh, so we look at uh, women at different um, kind of stages in terms of their the different cohorts as they go through uh, you know different roles at the firm. But there there is a time when uh, creating opportunities for women is, is critical. So opportunities to get plugged in with the right client teams, opportunities to help drive uh, a knowledge initiative or an office initiative, really give leadership opportunities to women because 
we really want to level the playing field when it comes to opportunity that's non negotiable and nobody uh, would argue ever that that's you know uh, unfair right so if we level the playing field on opportunity what we're finding is that we are more than leveling in terms of the outcomes because women are actually doing extremely well given those opportunities uh, another really interesting initiative is we've taken unconscious bias head on uh, and we have you know micro modules to sensitize people or just make them aware right of the kinds of assumptions we make when we are in a team we're doing it all the way down because actually uh, you know the moment of truth is when a consultant in a team working with the client you know with 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 the with the project manager or an engagement manager it's those kinds of habits that actually shape the level of confidence or optimism that women have to progress and believe this is a great firm to work in Absolutely. so we are consciously working at all those levels to change those mindsets and attitudes thank you thanks anu it's really interesting topic around unconscious bias and the the blind spots that we all have i suppose and aren't aware of were there are there any sort of tools that you'd point people towards to to just sort of up up their knowledge on that area um i i'm sure there are a lot of tools but again i would say and and i'm sure you know one can uh, look at them just online this is not a new topic it's a topic that's important and has received a lot of attention but what i would say is that if if you are trying to shape this for your organization it is really important to contextualize some of these tools to your own context and so one of the things that we actually believe in is to surface bottom up to surface some of these situations or stories and then it doesn't have to be a super fancy tool it can be just a set of situations and stories we make little cartoon flashcards out of this and then we have an online sort of module a training module that's uh, or, or as as well as like a frequent you know burst like an email burst to people so that they either read this or they actually can go and do a little training but the training is populated or these email bursts are populated with just stories that we have heard from people right and uh, the the value of that is not not to be preachy or to say that this was right or this was wrong but just looking at that real life situation which you can relate to because you're in many such situations every day just looking at that and seeing what it means and how it can be perceived is like a tremendous aha learning moment for people because it's mostly the case that these unconscious biases aren't intended to discriminate to be discriminatory right they're not intended to have harmful effects they're just things you don't think about and I, i we have found that just taking your own crop of little stories and showing that to people is actually very effective yeah 100% we had that in our first episode last week felipe the host was talking about his own blunders and blind spots and even just in how he was framing questions and the language he used so i just wondered if there's tools out there i suppose for people to to look at and explore in that way because everybody has these blind spots that they're not aware of but it's it's been really interesting to to hear from you on the topic um i, I guess it, i'm conscious of the time um in brief can you as a sort of, sort of final question and can you condense for us your advice to other leaders to help them prepare their organizations for the future of work 
So I would say two things. I would say uh, get granular about the data that relates to your workforce. Really know what you need, what you're likely to need at a very specific skill level, uh, you know, cross-tabbed with the kinds of locations or product lines or service lines you're thinking about, but get really granular about what you need versus what you have. And that's the only way you can chart, you know, your way forward. So that would be one. And the second thing I would say, particularly on diversity, I would say just have the courage, you know, to embrace this agenda now, because if you don't, you know, your customers and your future employees are going to race ahead of you. They're much more open to change, most likely, right? Particularly younger generations, right? So if we don't adapt now, then, uh, you know, we're not going to be in a great place in terms of uh, being successful long term. Great advice. Thank you very much, Anu. We really appreciate your time. And that brings us nicely to the end of the episode. To our listeners and viewers, um, we will be back next week with the next instalment of the series, She Leads Getting Real About Leading with Diversity and Data, as our guests share about how to build teams with diversity front of mind. 